Fall Bubble is living in this world that is just enshrouded with conspiratorial thinking surrounding his ideas about dispensational prophecy and the end of the world. You're listening to Good Faith Weekly. I'm Mitch Randall. And I'm Missy Randall. We're here each week exploring the intersection of faith and culture. We find people who stand up, speak out, and step forward. For inclusion, freedom, and justice for all. It's time for Good Faith Weekly. Brought to you by Good Faith Media. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I catch up, talk a little bit about our trip to New Orleans, and then later on in the pod, we sat down with author Carrie Ladner. She's got a brand new book out entitled End Times Politics, and it stirs up a lot of emotion for us. So it's going to be a good pod, so stay tuned. Hello there, Missy. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well, and you? I am good. Well, well we- wait, I am I'm well. I'm great. How's that? Let's go with that. I'm great. Well, we just got back from a little bit of R&R. Sort of. We had a little bit of R&R, then pivoted to the next spot we'll get to in a minute. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, we did. Yeah, we were down in the Big Easy celebrating our anniversary. Yeah, we talked about last week. We were heading to New Orleans for a little quick, uh, long weekend getaway, which was super fun. Super fun. And I learned a couple of things. Okay. Tell us about that. One... There is no place chattier than an airplane full of people heading to New Orleans on a Thursday afternoon. <laughs> You're absolutely right. I mean, you could hear the uh, the conniving plans of debauchery occurring on absolutely. the plane. Absolutely. <laughs> that was such a fun just to sit and watch and listen to this plane full of people. They were so excited to get there. Anticipation. And there is no place smellier <laughs> Than the airplane leaving New Orleans on Sunday afternoon. There is a variety of aromas that can only smell like shame and bad choices. And regret. I mean, let's. We stepped on that airplane and I turned around and looked at you. My nose was just curled. I was like, oh, they need to turn the air on in here. It just, you could smell the sweat yeah. of, yes, like you said, bad choices. Bad choices and regret. You're absolutely right. So, so yeah. It was, but we had a great time. We uh, listened to some jazz music, we had little Cajun food, and maybe, just maybe, had a beignet or two. Or seven. (laughs) Yes, we did. The music was amazing. We found some great spots to listen and just just had a great time walking around and enjoying the city. Took a tour, you know, did all the touristy things. So it was fun. It was fun, and it was nice to get away. But I will say this. Okay. Just like parents who leave their children alone for an evening (laughs) thinking, surely we can go out and they'll be fine. I know where you're going with this. We learned. Yes, we did. We cannot leave our state alone for a weekend without them doing something stupid. I mean, you hope the best for your kids. You expect them to, you know, make good choices while you're gone. And they just disappoint you. (laughs) So we, again... Full, we'll we'll get to the rest of the story in yeah. a moment, but we left New Orleans, flew to D.C. Yes, for you know work related uh, things we'll talk about in a minute, and ran into a, a good friend of ours in the hotel lobby who said, "Hey, have you heard what your state senator? You know, what? I'm not even going to say his name. I don't no think he deserves to say it." His name. 
said um, in a public forum, we said, no, we've been unplugged for the weekend and looked it up and found, again, we talked about last week, the, the unfortunate and tragic death of next Benedict in our state. And as much as I normally enjoy being right, mm-hmm. are we right? Right? Yes, absolutely. Right. Yeah, we, you enjoy it immensely. <laughs> I am sick to my stomach. Yeah. Because last week I told, I think I said in the opening, mm-hmm. I think I said it on the podcast, that the folks who are on the far right don't care that inclusion and acceptance and love is a life and death issue because they don't feel like certain lives are valuable right. or worthy. Mm-hmm. And our, you know, dear little state senator confirmed what I said when he was in a public forum. Do you want to read the statement or do you want me to? No, go ahead. And he states, we are a religious state and we are going to fight it to keep that filth out of the state of Oklahoma because we are a Christian state. There you go. Yeah, he said something out loud that has been said behind closed doors. And we've been talking about this here at Good Faith Weekly, Good Faith Media, and for decades within this movement fighting for equality and justice. And one of the things that I want to say about this, Missy, is that this type of rhetoric, this type of mentality, this type of hate was a reminder that in the height of the marches after the death and murder of George Floyd, when African-American people took to the streets chanting Black Lives Matter, and it even happened before that at the death of Michael Brown. Mm-hmm. And the retort from conservative Christians was what? All lives matter. That was bull****. I mean... Because all lives do not matter to them. Period. I mean, that's that's a great point. They came back with, oh, but all lives matter. They don't to them. And yet you just legit said <laughs> on a hot mic <laughs> that they don't. No, they absolutely don't. They want to get that. And I, it's hard to even say, uh, but to quote uh, the senator, and I just can't believe he's a state senator at this point, uh, keeping that well, filth uh, out of Oklahoma. But this is this is not an isolated incident. I mean, there was a Republican state representative last year who was arguing for an anti-trans bill in the the Florida state that talked about the eradication of LGBTQ people. That that would be acceptable because it was so wrong in his eyes. I mean, a lot of people think. When we talk about these things, when we write about these things at Good Faith Media, that we are, you know, being um, alarmist. Uh, alarmist. Yeah. Uh, we're using hyperbole in our descriptions. Maya Angelou said it best: when someone tells you who they are, believe them the first time. This is who these people are, and it is appalling. It is evil. 
And it, it is something that good and decent people, both progressive people and conservative people, understand to be evil. The only way that we can change this rhetoric and these actions is for good people, no matter their political affiliations, even no matter their religious convictions, good, decent, honest people who are out there standing up to this kind of hate and saying, oh, no, you don't. This is not who we are. The sad thing is, I'm really worried this might be who we are in the state of Oklahoma. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think you're right. I just think it's the general we. I mean, it, that's our state. Unfortunately, though, that's the thing. It's not just our state. We're seeing this in other states, too, that have these super majorities and this ridiculous ideology. Mm -hmm. Because and, and you you actually even brought this to my attention a couple of days ago. I'd love for you to expand on this. Is what we have seen in the death of Nex and now the rhetoric coming from the state senator and other rhetoric that we've already mentioned, and the fact that all lives don't matter to them. Our African American brothers and sisters have been telling us this for decades. Yeah, so in the wake of Nex's death and kind of the, the conf I don't know, I don't know that I want to say confusing, but just the, the information that would come out and then change and then there, you know, the coroner wasn't saying much and it felt eerily like the death of an African-American person during the civil rights movement. Right. Where it's just, it's just covered up nobody's ever really going to give you the real story. And in this day and age with the information we have, with access to information that we have, it is, I mean, I am astounded at the secrecy that still seems to be there um, happening where I just, for the first time, I'm wondering, are we ever going to know the real story? Mm -hmm. And, it it just felt I didn't I was not alive, you know, pre nineteen seventy five. But from what you've read, from what you've heard from right. folks, it's just that's what it feels like. It might have been like. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're exactly right. And when you said that a few days ago, it was like this big light bulb came out on my mind that said, you know, yes, that's exactly what we have read in history books and what we have listened to. Uh, from firsthand accounts from people who lived during Jim Crow and the civil rights movement. Um, and here is, here's what is so discouraging and alarming about this story. Everybody was following the white supremacy script. Maybe that's what I'm trying to vocalize. That they feigned sympathy and talked about protection of every citizen. Um, but in the end, this state senator said was probably at the heart of what every one of them were thinking. Right. Get this filth out of our state. It's gross. It is so gross. It is 
anti-Christian, it's anti-follower uh, of Jesus. None of this has any semblance of spirituality or uh, ethical standards. Uh, but not only is it anti-faith, it is anti-democracy. And that brings us to why we are recording this in Washington, D.C. tonight. So, yes, we left New Orleans. We flew to D.C. for a conference that was um, convened by an organization that we partner with, Democracy Forward. Yes. Um, called Together for Democracy. Mm-hmm. It's a great and, conference. And they brought together several organizations who are who are doing the work on the ground. Doing the front lines kind of work, yeah. Of yeah, trying to preserve our democracy. And it it was such an inspiring few days, a daunting few days as you put people in a room who are doing work, which is so important because we need to be talking to one another. We need to be communicating about the work that's being done. On the last day, we got to hear from a representative from Tennessee, Justin Jones, who was one of the Tennessee, Tennessee three, three that got expelled. Um, was last it a year, year. ago? It was yeah. It last year? Yeah, last year. And then um, U.S. Representative Joaquin Castro from Texas, out of San Antonio. Correct. And they just told again, of their experiences of serving in government and what they're going through and really just shine the light on what's happening on the floor of our our bodies that are governing and attempting to make legislation. Two two things really stood out to me listening to them speak. And, And first of all, about the conference itself remarkable organizations all across the country. You know, it is easy to get discouraged when you hear hateful remarks by a state senator and hear everything else that's going on in our country. But it's also inspiring to see how organizations and individuals across this country are countering that narrative and fighting the good fight uh, on Main Street USA across this country. And that's what was revealed to me the last three days here in our nation's capital. But in particular, these two speakers, Representative Jones from Tennessee, said a couple of things. One, as someone who has literally had a megaphone taken out of microphone. his... Microphone. A microphone taken out of his hand. Mm-hmm. He said this, you can take a microphone out of my hand, but I've got a megaphone in my pocket. So uh, it's funny how you and I like, have the same quotes. I have, <laughs> I have it in my phone. I have it different. I have it cut my mic and I will pick up my megaphone, yeah. he told us last night. Yeah. And I just thought, man... Wow. So let that be a lesson to you, my (laughs) co-host. You cut my mic again, I will pick up my megaphone. (laughs) But I mean, just the energy and someone who who has felt the sting of attempts to silence him and his colleagues, uh, that every time that happens, um, while it's discouraging, it's also inspiring for him to keep going, to keep fighting, to keep battling, because democracy is so important. And I, I will say this, as today we were having a Q&A session, and someone in the audience asked the representative, said, you know, it's one thing to get people into office who are good and decent and have, right, right. you know, the 
the well-being of all Americans sure. um, as their priority. How do we keep them there? Yeah. And I don't want to speak for him or for anyone in that situation, but I did get a sense of how difficult it is. It's one thing to get elected, but to walk into that place every day and know you're the minority party, you are going to get defeated. And I did sense a little bit of it's hard. Because, I mean, one of the stories he retold, which we've heard before from him uh, on uh, national news, was one of the first things he was told when he entered into the House chamber as a first-term representative for his state was what? You don't belong here. And that was just... I mean, it hit my heart. Yeah, and one of the young attorneys, I mean, young, younger than me, um, you know, asked, yeah. just said, how do you even react to that as human being when yeah. someone looks at you and says, you don't belong here? Mm-hmm. With the very obvious implication of, right. you don't belong here sure. because of the color of your skin. Yeah, yeah. And he was very honest. And just, I, in that moment, you're just so, so dumbstruck. Mm-hmm by the comment that you're getting. Yeah. And to me, it's just, it's, it's crazy that that's still where we are. And that is why it's so inspirational to listen to people like representative Jones, as well as U S Congressman Joaquin Castro and Congressman Castro said something even as profound as uh, representative Jones, when he was talking about the importance of democracy and that it is teetering right now. Uh, because of authoritarianism and the influences, which I can't even believe I'm saying this, of fascism is what it is. He said, and I quote, if Donald Trump wins the 2024 presidential election, the United States of America stands at the threshold of fascism. Let that sink in. Let that sink in for all of you who grew up revering the greatest generation our grandfathers and great-grandfathers who stormed Normandy, who fought in Europe because of fascism, who made the great sacrifice, thinking that they had ridden the world of fascism, only to discover it not only has reemerged, it's reemerged in our own country. But I don't think we realize it. We're the, the frog in the hot water kind of situation. You're right. You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. So, well, we have talked a lot today about some heavy subjects, and we're going to continue to do that because we have a great interview. Uh, and I'm going to give anybody a who grew up in the 1980s, especially, a trigger warning because our guest this week is Carrie Ladner, author of In Time Politics, and she talks about uh, the theology of the 80s that talked about Armageddon and all the things associated uh, with end times, eschatology and politics. And uh, we had a great conversation with her, uh, but brought up a lot of feelings for me. (laughs) It was funny. I'm not sure if you were like excited. It was weird. You were like excited because you felt very validated. Yes. Um, But at the same time, it's terrifying. Absolutely. So. So, So stay tuned. Missy and I sit down with Carrie Ladner, author of in time politics. 
This episode is brought to you by the Summit for Religious Freedom. Christian nationalists, extremists, and their political allies are working overtime to impose their narrow religious beliefs on all of us. Learn how to fight back at the Summit for Religious Freedom on April 13th to the 16th in Washington, D.C. We're organizing to defend LGBTQ rights, abortion, contraception, and reproductive rights, our public schools, our democracy, and the separation of church and state. The Summit for Religious Freedom is the hub for this collective fight. TheSRF.org, that's T-H-E-S-R-F.org, has all the details. Use promo code GOODFAITH for 10% off registration. Anyone can attend virtually, and current students can attend the summit virtually for free. Scholarships are also available. SRF sold out last year, and tickets are going fast. Don't sleep on this. Visit thesrf.org today, and don't forget to use promo code GOODFAITH for 10% off registration. The summit is hosted by Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Freedom without favor and equality without exception. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us all the way from North Texas. Dr. Carrie Ladner received her PhD at the University of Edinburgh and has published in the Christian Century. She has just released a brand new book, End Times Politics, From Moral Majority to QAnon. Carrie, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, Carrie. So I ha- Missy's got the first question, but I have to say this out of the shoot. I have been so excited about this conversation. This book has been sitting on my shelf for a couple of weeks now. I dove into it. It is fabulous. But I have been trying to convince people for so long that the subject that you talk about in this book is real because there's a lot of people who just don't believe it. So first of all, thank you for writing the book. And I am so excited about this yes, conversation. He's feeling very validated right now. So can we just all take a moment? It doesn't happen very often, does it? It okay. does not happen very often. <laughs> so Carrie, let's start by talking about what interested you in the religious right and in times politics. And why is this topic so vital for you? So I was personally affected by some of the policies that emanated from the religious right, going back to when I was very young because of cuts to children's services and assistance not being able, not being accessible to children who were at risk, Um, foster care services being extremely limited, CPS not having the capacity to perform its functions, and as a result being placed in a facility that was unlicensed and regulated by a collection of churches This was part of Governor George Bush's faith-based initiatives in Texas prior to his becoming president, where he had actually authorized churches to be operating residential child care facilities as well as drug rehab programs without being licensed by the state. And so there was no oversight provided to these programs. I was in one of these programs when I was 11. And what happened is that the children and adults who were part of these faith-based programs were actually experiencing high levels of abuse and neglect. And this went national when Governor Bush became President Bush and had his faith-based initiatives, where he basically took this model from Texas and made it nationwide. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for sharing your personal story, because, you know, like I said uh, in the beginning of this, that, uh, 
this type of theology and politics that uh, permeates the religious right, especially in this country, uh, is filtering down to all aspects of life. And so you do a great job uh, capturing that uh, within just really the, the first few chapters of your book. So do you mind if, if you... If you don't mind me asking a little bit more of a personal question, as a child, as you're going through this situation and you're in, in this care, you're not receiving services, I mean, at, at 11, I wouldn't have been able to connect the dots of why this was trickling down and affecting my life that way. At what point did you realize that these policies and this theology, you know, were what were directly affecting and impacting you and many others? Like, how did you connect those dots and decide, hey, I'm going to write about this. This needs to be exposed. Well, it started when I was about 17. I got curious about this place called Victory Acres where I had lived. And I just started looking it up online to see if there was any information I could find. And I found an article about the Roloff homes, which were associated with Victory Acres, and that provided a lot of information about how they were connected to these faith-based initiatives of Governor Bush and how the faith-based initiatives actually were not renewed after they expired back in 2000 because there were so many allegations of abuse and neglect, but then they actually did go nationwide. And that just got me to start thinking and wondering. And because this was something that had actually happened to me, this was not abstract. This was not something that I could just put away. So then as a graduate student, I started reading about Jerry Falwell and this movement that he had brought together. It was kind of a strange thing to be reading about from this academic perspective, because this is the water that I had swam in growing up. Um, so reading about how that water had been poisoned mm. was really eye-opening. But again, I wasn't able to just ignore it or just say, oh, this is something interesting. I could write a paper about this because I had been personally affected by it in some life-changing ways. Okay, so Carrie, we're going to talk about Falwell. This, that's a great segue into our conversation about him and his theology and politics, how they are still affecting society even after his death. But let's get some terms uh, down for our audience because we talk a lot of, or you talk a lot about dispensationalism in the book and this concept that uh, just permeates this entirety of this radical right theology uh, that has made its way into the popular culture now. So I can remember, Carrie, growing up as a kid, pulling out that old Schofield Bible, having no idea what the footnotes were teaching me in it. So really briefly, can you explain what dispensationalism is and the person who gave uh, it popularity, John Nelson Darby? So John Nelson Darby was an Anglo-Irish priest in the 1800s. This was at the time following the Napoleonic Wars. The Napoleonic Wars were a time of pretty intense upheaval throughout Europe and the British Isles, a time of a lot of uncertainty. And there was an, a surge of prophecy belief going on throughout Europe and the British Isles at this time. John Nelson Darby entered into this conversation around prophecy belief, and he injected some new ideas, particularly involving the rapture, which is the belief that Christians are going to spontaneously ascend into heaven before the wrath of God descends in what he called the tribulation. 
and central to the tribulation, for Darby actually was the Pope, who he believed to be the Antichrist. These kinds of Protestant Catholic tensions were not entirely uncommon at the time, um, and he also was not the first Protestant to call the Pope the Antichrist, but this became central where the, this idea of the end times, a one-world dictator, the rapture, and the fulfillment of prophecy about the wrath of God being poured out onto the world for rejecting Christ. So about during the Civil War, during America's Civil War, about 1863, Darby traveled to the United States at a time of, again, immense upheaval. So this was forged in the upheaval of Europe around the Napoleonic Wars, and then it came to the United States at a time where families were literally fighting each other on the battlefield. So the way that it was received uh, was pretty definitive mm -hmm. in how people were ready to believe that the end times are at hand. Because when you're experiencing something like the Civil War, where brothers are killing brothers on the battlefield, it's it's pretty easy to believe that the end of the world actually is happening, or if it's not currently happening, it's going to happen very soon. Mm -hmm. So Darby came into contact with a pastor named James Hall Brooks. James Hall Brooks was one of the big popularizers of dispensationalism in the aftermath of the Civil War, and he mentored a Confederate veteran named Cyrus Ingerson Schofield. Schofield was the editor of the Schofield Bible, and this was published by Oxford University Press, was actually the best-selling book in the history of Oxford University Press, if that gives you any indication of just how popular it was. And the fact that it had Oxford as the publisher gave it a lot of validity among both academic circles, outside of dispensational circles, really among the, the general public, particularly in the United States. So what he did is he developed footnotes that went at the bottom of pages in the Bible. These were commentary on how to understand verses, such as the Ezekiel chapter about Gog and Magog, explaining that this is about an end times invasion of Russia. So these commentaries that he added at the bottom of pages were directly related to his understanding of dispensational prophecy. So he really popularized it in that way. So, Carrie, you were bringing, I mean, I should have given a trigger warning to this because everything okay. you're saying takes me right back to my childhood, especially in my youth group during the 1980s and all of this prophecy being taught uh, in those classes. I can remember going home as a young child, crying myself to sleep, thinking that the Bible has predicted uh, the destruction, annihilation of the world. And so, I mean, it's just, you, you gave this historical analysis of it I really appreciated, uh, but really, there are so many people who have said, who have told me that they were traumatized exactly. by how they were taught about the end times. Yeah. Okay. So, Carrie, connect the dots for us from uh, this European theologian who uh, developed this concept of dispensationalism to Lynchburg, Virginia, and this Baptist pastor uh, named Jerry Falwell. Okay, so Jerry Falwell was a dispensationalist. He attended a an unaccredited Bible college, Baptist Bible College in Springfield, Missouri, uh, taught dispensationalism. But at this time, dispensationalism 
didn't look the same way. It was a lot more academic. The focus was on Christian separatism from the world. The world is doomed for destruction. The world is under the judgment of God. And Christians needed to separate themselves as much as possible from these ungodly institutions. So Jerry Falwell changed this from a radical separation from the world to radical engagement with the world. And he did so because he believed that America's policies were aligned with the Antichrist, this movement that would become part of the tribulation that was under the wrath of God. He saw America itself as being a part of this global conspiracy that was heading towards the the rise of the Antichrist. But on a much more personal level, he had been affected in his ministry by how the IRS was going to revoke the tax-exempt status of Liberty University and Liberty Christian School for refusing to admit a number of Black students that was proportionate to the local population, as well as there was an SEC scandal back in the early 1970s that many have pointed to as a turning point in his ministry where he realized that actually if he's going to save his own ministry, he has to turn around how the American government is operating. What I heard in these footnotes of this interview is (laughs) money shows up. (laughs) Well, money always shows up. In this in this transcript, that'll be the asterisk at the bottom. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Do you want to hear more about the goal? This book was not to follow the money, but. That is definitely a worthy undertaking. And there's the new book, The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, that oh. took a closer look at the money that was involved in the rise of the religious right. I just, it, it's funny as we're sitting here and Mitch and I are both listening to you talk, like he mentioned, you know, this is just the trigger warning effect. I'm trying not to giggle at everything because I'm just hearing things that were just, I can remember being in youth group and just being boy crazy, you know, but yet in the background, all of these things these that teachings, you're talking yeah. about, all these teachings. And so you're putting the the bigger piece of the puzzle or the bigger puzzle together for us. I, I really appreciate that. So um, before I'm, I'm a little afraid to step on, but are we, are you ready to move on from Falwell or do you want to camp out here for No, I think we're ready to move on because, you know, what Falwell does, as uh, as Carrie indicates in the book, is that, well, yeah, we could follow the money. He also takes this idea of dispensationalism as well as what is going on culturally, especially in the South, and leverages that to create a real political juggernaut. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that centers around what Kerry, you know, indicates in the book is the 1950s civil rights movement and, of course, the Brown v. Board of Education. Oh, that's a great segue into my question. Oh, it's like we planned that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Gary, you addressed a topic in the book, another one that Mitch has been harping on for years, is that much of what the religious right advocates for is directly related to the 1954 Brown v. Board of Education decision that ended segregation in public schools. So talk to us about how that decision laid the groundwork for other topics that the religious right promotes, um, such as abortion and family values. Sure. So first off, the religious right did not begin to emerge as a movement until the late 1970s, early 1980s, pretty much around the election of Ronald Reagan. 
But the political activism that defined the the political agenda of the religious right really comes down to the 1954 Brown v. Board of Education decision. Now, we could go back before that and analyze other historical points as being definitive. But this is where Falwell's activism begins. At this point, he's a young pastor in his early 20s, and he's actually working with segregationist groups in an attempt to keep Virginia's public schools segregated. And then when that failed, attempting to actually have Virginia's public schools shut down to avoid segregation or to avoid desegregation. We, we get out of this the family values idea because of a lot of the stereotypes and tropes that he and other people really culturally, systemically were attributed to African-Americans, such as drug use, relying on welfare, uh, having children out of wedlock so that they can get more welfare payments, the idea of the welfare queen, which Reagan really capitalized on in his presidential campaign. And this idea that actually we don't want this for our children. We want our children to grow up in wholesome Christian environments where they're not having to worry about drugs and they're not having to associate with bums who are refusing to work because they can receive welfare payments. And so where you see a lot of this rhetoric that uh, Falwell issued around drug use and around welfare, these were actually code code words for racism. And we know, we can look at today's opioid crisis and say, well, this is not unique to African-Americans. A lot of people of all races, especially white people, have been dying of the opioid epidemic. But we have historically, and especially in this time period in the 1960s, 1970s, attributed that to the integration of African-Americans into American society. Very well said. Now, another topic that you address in the book, uh, Carrie, is the politics of Armageddon. And I mentioned a moment ago that as a young child, after Wednesday and Sunday night Bible study, I would come home and cry myself to sleep. This is the reason I would cry myself to sleep <laughs> because of this idea. These days, it's other reasons. Yeah, that's a whole, that's a whole that's another episode. Something a marriage counselor <laughs> needs to deal with. But, uh, but this is this was the topic. So, uh, first of all, I want to talk about this issue domestically, uh, the implications it has for us domestically, and then also uh, later on uh, with foreign policy. But let's first talk about the politics of Armageddon uh, in direct correlation with what's going on here domestically. Even as a child, I could remember people of faith's fascination with guns and the stockpiling of guns, uh, and almost the worship of the Second Amendment uh, to the Constitution. We are the most gun-crazed culture in the world. We have more guns than you can imagine, because we believe that there is this darkness looming around every corner that wants to take our stuff, and therefore we have to defend ourselves. Do you think this politics of Armageddon, this militarization of faith, plays a direct correlation with what's going on with gun violence in our country today? Well, if we back up a little bit, one thing that's essential to this end times prophecy, particularly as Baba promoted it, but also as Tim LaHaye promoted it in the Left Behind series. And remember, the Left Behind series 
was immensely successful in popularizing dispensationalism for an audience that would have never even heard it. A lot of people, by the way, were traumatized by reading Left Behind or by watching the Left Behind movies. Well, an important component here is that there's going to be this mass persecution of Christians during the end times. And then one thing that happened that I, I was 11 years old when this happened, and so I definitely remember it differently than than you do, is the 1999 shooting at Columbine High School. Yes. And the stories that circulated in the aftermath is that two of the girls who died there, Cassie Bernal and Rachel Scott, died as martyrs, that the gunman asked them if they believe in God before shooting them in the head. These stories circulated very rapidly. The Columbine shooting was on a Tuesday. By the next Sunday, it was in probably every single church in America. The story about Cassie Bernal, um, but that story was disproven by the fall. And then the story of Rachel Scott, there was actually never any evidence that she had been asked about her faith in God ever. Right. Well, but before being shot, there, sure. there was no evidence that she yeah. had been asked about her faith in God. But the stories had a very powerful effect mm-hmm. among people who were expecting that there was going to be this end times persecution of Christians. And so then there is a growing belief that we need to arm ourselves. And you actually see this reflected in the Left Behind novels, where the Christians in the tribulation force are stockpiling weapons to protect themselves and even kill the people who would come after that. And you, there's even the Left Behind video game, which thankfully was not very successful. But in the Left Behind video game, it was actually acceptable to kill somebody to if you can't convert them. Oh my gosh. Wow. I'd heard about this, but did not know the details behind it. I did not. I'm at a, I'm just a loss for words. We, I did not read the books. Um, and obviously didn't know anything about the video game, but that's, that's wow. Wow. New bit of information. Sorry. Go on, Carrie. (laughs) Well, I just don't think we can underestimate the effect of these martyrologies that emerged from the Columbine shooting in the development of evangelical gun culture in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. I agree. So with that said, let's also talk about how this politics of Armageddon plays into our foreign policy. I can remember hearing... um, uh, historians and theologians talk as early as the 1990s, the influence that this type of uh, theology and politics was having on our foreign policy. For example, the first time Benjamin Netanyahu became president or, or prime minister of Israel, when he would come to the United States to on a state visit, before he would go to the White House, before he would go meet with members of Congress, he would go to Lynchburg and talk to Falwell. And it just demonstrated the, the, the connection between uh, dispensationalism, especially the idea of premillennialism and the return of Israel and that we have to support Israel at all costs. How does that play, does that still play uh, a major role in our foreign policy today? Because, I mean, Carrie, you know as well as I know, the Middle East is once again in turmoil. Yes. So I actually lived in the Middle East for three and a half years. I lived in Oman, Jordan. So I've seen a lot of this firsthand. I've experienced some of the fear that comes from being in an area that is a powder keg. So 
the Battle of Armageddon is an interpretation of scripture that says that there's going to be this massive battle that's going to result in the deaths of like 400 million people. And it's going to happen in Israel. And this is where the blood is going to flow up to the horse's bridle for, you know, 200 miles. This mm-hmm. is a very grisly thing that is depicted, right. but it, ha- it it's supposed to happen in Israel. And we're seeing this turmoil going on right now following the October 7th Hamas attack. And you could actually look at YouTube videos and media that's come out of groups like the Christian Broadcasting Network and see there is a surge of talking about Armageddon around October 7th. But also we want to think about what this means in terms of nuclear policy. Mm -hmm. So Ronald Reagan was a believer in Armageddon. He was a huge believer in Armageddon. And there was actually a lot of fear at the time in the 1980s that he was using his belief in Armageddon as a rationale for nuclear buildup. He had reversed America's position of detente and trying to invest more resources into things that just make the world a little bit more livable, like social programs, public schools, instead investing them into nuclear buildup. We've not seen a reversal of this. And I think that's what's really important is to say, well, Maybe these ideas are not currently affecting or directly affecting, let's say, Biden's approach to the current war in in Gaza, but we've not seen any retraction of the politics that emerged around Ronald Reagan and nuclear buildup because he believed in the Battle of Armageddon. Okay, Carrie, let's continue on our workbook, um, another page of Connect the Dots. <laughs> another trigger warning is what no, you're trying I'm just to say. Like, I'm just imagining, yes, Connect the Dots. Um, uh, well, how about we think about this more as coloring? Like, you have a coloring book and you're connecting the dots. Okay. Like, don't worry about the trigger warning. Like, we're just going to go okay. to our I love that. We'll do that. And so this last Next question, it's, it's so funny for me because in the at the end of the book you you talk about the satanic panic and whenever i hear about this i am immediately in my driveway in 1983 84 in my roller skates skating around <laughs> worrying about the satanist <laughs> i mean it's so it's such a, a core like visual big problem in irving texas back then huh <laughs> yeah actually we were in san antonio at the time okay. but anyways <laughs> Yeah. So anyways, if you talk about the satanic panic of the 80s and connect it to the Clinton scandals in the 90s and the rise of of QAnon in 2016, can you help talk about that a little bit? And then even maybe going into the Illuminati, how Trump talks about the deep state and like I said, QAnon kind of let's color that sheet in a little bit. (laughs) Right. So. The satanic panic is something that really did happen in America in the 1980s. And this is kind of astounding because it really does seem like the Salem witch trials mm-hmm. where there was this began in the 1970s, the McMartin preschool in Manhattan Beach, California, where there was this really weird accusation that the um, preschool teachers were molesting a two-year-old boy and this turned into accusations that the teachers were flying through the air and flushing the children down toilets and taking them into these underground chambers underneath the preschool and taking them to Mexico where they're being shot and with rubber bullets and being raped and 
Like, this was just completely absurd, okay? Like, this is literally the imagination of preschoolers that are being taken literally at face value by law enforcement. And there's absolutely no evidence that any of this is actually happening, even though the evidence should have been completely overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And the fear of what was happening, that there were Satanists in, in America's daycares, teaching America's children and, you know, assaulting them and taking them to satanic temples and sacrificing babies to Satan and forcing preschoolers to drink the blood of babies that have been sacrificed to Satan. This is just so absurd that it actually happened. Like this was like people literally went to prison over this. Okay. There was no evidence that any of it was actually occurring. Last I heard is that there were people actually still in prison Mm -hmm. because of this. Um, and so you're living in, Falwell is living in this world that is just enshrouded with conspiratorial thinking surrounding his ideas about dispensational prophecy and the end of the world. Mm-hmm. And that's coloring his approach to these events that, you know, that Satanists are lurking in the woods. Now, there's no evidence that I could find that he was directly connected to the satanic panic, to any of these accusations. If anybody has that kind of evidence, I would love to see it. But it's more this environment of fear and conspiratorial thinking that he fed on. And this really grew in the Clinton administration. And one thing that's really funny is my, one of my favorite movies of all time is the 1993 movie Hocus Pocus. Mm -hmm. And it played so much on the zeitgeist of the satanic panic. I actually emailed one of the writers of the movie a couple of years ago and asked him if he got any of the ideas for it from the satanic panic. And he said, well, you know, we were aware that this was kind of in the water, but that wasn't directly influencing us. But you see, there's these witches in the woods, first in Salem, Massachusetts. So they're drawing on the Salem witch trials, bringing it into the present day, because this is really what was happening, is the Salem witch trials all over again. And they're trying to kidnap children and kill them and so that they can make this potion that'll make them young and beautiful again. And one day I was watching Hocus Pocus and thought, oh my gosh, this is QAnon. Like if Hillary Clinton was one of those witches, that is the core of the QAnon conspiracy theory. Mm. We have to go back and And watch that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You actually see this developing not in the 2010s, But in the 1990s, where Falwell is spreading these conspiratorial beliefs about the Clintons, particularly around the Whitewater scandal and then the Monica Lewinsky scandal, where he actually had the core of QAnon that he was spreading in the the late 1990s, this idea that there is this secret satanic cabal of pedophiles that is forming a shadow government and you need to be afraid of them and we need to find the truth. We need to uncover the truth and we need to get these people out of power. Wow. Well, Carrie Ladner, you have been remarkable. The book is titled in times politics from moral majority to QAnon. And Carrie, as somebody who grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma in the shadow of Rama Bible Institute and Oral Roberts university, this has just hit my heart <laughs> in so many ways. I mean, I could remember attending church with Carmen, 
who wrote so many stories about the satanic or so many songs about the satanic panic and all of this. Uh, it just and about the rapture, the rapture, everything about it. So uh, this book really spoke to me. It is a fantastic, very, very well researched uh, book. And I thank you for publishing it. Uh, and thanks for being a guest this week on Good Faith Weekly. Well, thanks again for having me. But before we let you go, Carrie, we got one last question we need to ask you. And as always, Missy's going to ask it. So Carrie, as you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of your work in our conversation today, what is your more to tell? This is not historical evangelicalism. Evangelicals historically have been at the forefront of progressive social reform. They were at the front of the movement for abolition, for temperance, for working laws, for labor laws, child labor laws, minimum wage, and then even going to the the civil rights movement. This is not who evangelicals are, and there is a way back. That's a great way to end it. Wow. (laughs) Thank you so much, Carrie. Again, the book is End Times Politics from Moral Majority to QAnon. You need to go pick it up right now. Carrie, thanks again. Thank you. Missy, this was so personal for me. (laughs) I I mean, I think like I said in the beginning, you've been so weirdly triggered, but also giddy (laughs) about this book. (laughs) It was validating. (laughs) Yes, I think we mentioned that in the interview. But Mm -hmm. I, in thinking about my last question to Carrie and putting myself back in 1983, Mm -hmm. And skating, I, I, I was a big roller skater. I mean, I was a pretty good roller skater. Still am today, if I might add. But <laughs> well, don't, don't hurt yourself, pat yourself on the back That's there. right. I mean, um, but I was thinking about this in my eight, nine-year-old self and skating around my neighborhood, worrying about the Satanists coming after me all the while. <laughs> I'm doing this with no helmet on. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I'm like, if that is not quintessentially 80s, I don't know what is. Like, we will ride our bikes all over the neighborhood unsupervised or skate, skateboard, all of this with no helmet. But we are worried about the Satanists that are lurking in our cul de sac. Oh my God! Can you say I'm a child of the Ronald Reagan era any other way? <laughs> That's right. Uh, Sorry. I mean, then also, I mean, you know, obviously, I'm a little bit older than you. I can remember when the national seatbelt laws went into effect, and how some of my family were so opposed to seatbelts and and what they would do to protect you, but the Satanist. They were out there. Right? Okay, so I have this is a completely different aside. Yeah. You know, you and I differ on this is on this issue, right? Uh-huh. Um, because my dad was an EMT when he was younger, right? Yeah, and so even in the day when nobody else was wearing seatbelts and nobody else had car sure, seats, absolutely. we were mm-hmm. always buckled in in the seatbelt. We had car seats, the whole thing, to the point where my mother would buckle us in so tight. <laughs> God rest her soul. We could not breathe. I'm not kidding you. And she even, this is another funny story. She, even if there were like four kids in the Uh back seat where there were only three seat belts, she had this whole weird configuration of, 
I don't know, like cats in the cradle situation <laughs> with the seatbelts that she would do. <laughs> so that we were all, it wasn't like you shared a seatbelt. Like she would loop one around one of you and crisscross it over another and all of this. Sorry, you just brought back a really vivid oh, no memory doubt. for me. <laughs> And then we prayed the Satanist would no. Well, yeah, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. My fear of of all of that and the end times and the rapture really did not come from my parents. Mm. Honestly, I don't remember. I don't, yeah, it, it didn't come from my parents either. I think it was all it your was teachers all and like youth well, leaders and things like this. It and, was all church driven. I mean, hundred yeah, percent. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, but so, I I want to in, in light of the our our intro, we talked about you know being here in D.C. Mm. and talking about the state of our the state of our nation, um, you know, upcoming election and Christian nationalism and all of these topics that have been just in the forefront of our mind the last two days at this conference. Mm -hmm. I mean, the book is literally called End Times Politics. Right. And one thing that you have been beating the drum about for years now is this ideology and this belief about end times politics and how mm. we like to kind of roll our eyes at, at some things and some crazy folks and some crazy ideals. But right. you have long said these people who buy into this truly believe in this as a religious fundamental idea. Right. So go. Ready? <laughs> Three, two, one. Go. On your mark, set, go. Yeah. I mean, we could have a lot of fun with all of the you know craziness of the 70s and 80s growing up in a lot of this nonsense. And I can, you know, it could take you back to listening on loop Carmen's Witch's Invitation. I could probably, if you, if, you know what? If you got me started, I could probably, probably still <laughs> like recite all the lyrics. Hey, yeah. maybe we'll do that as a treat one time. Yeah. That'll be a bonus yeah. episode. You yeah. and me like... What do you call it? Beatboxing? Yeah, Is that we, what you call we it? We do that, yeah. <laughs> to witch's invitation. Uh, so, I mean, when we think about it now in this stage of life and where we are theologically, uh, you know, it, it does seem a bit crazy. But the reality is that was laying the theological foundation for what we are experiencing today. And that is what is terrifying. And as you said, I've been saying for a long time that a lot of people out there listen to uh, these sermons that talk about end times theology, that talk about the rapture, that talk about Armageddon, uh, and talk about the conflicts that will bring about Armageddon. And they, you know, they, they think it's crazy, they, you know, they laugh it off, or they think that's just rhetoric that religious people are, are using to propagate, you know, their faith or their coffers, whatever, whatever you want to say. But here's the reality. Many believe it. And what we're beginning to see is how that eschatology, that understanding of end times, is affecting the real world. And not only foreign policy of nation states, but also domestic policy within nation states. Mm -hmm. And that is what is so terrifying. So while we do laugh about it, while we find it humorous, and I think it's all in good nature, the scary part of all of this is that we may be laughing ourselves into some very serious turmoil. Mm -hmm. And that is what is terrifying. I can remember at the height of the pandemic and the vaccine had just come out 
And uh, we had a very prominent uh, epidemiologist call uh, to talk to me about what was going on in their efforts to get everybody vaccinated in their state. Mm -hmm. And that epidemiologist asked me, hey, I got a question for you. And I was thinking, oh, all right, you know, what kind of question? She's going to ask you about science yeah, and yeah, like ask me about how science. the immune system I, I, works guy, right? and I'm vaccines. Your, and <laughs> I'm your guy. <laughs> but she said, hey, um, what is this um, phrase we've been hearing about the mark of the beast? Wow. And it was like, oh... You got Gra- a minute? Grab a drink <laughs> and sit down. I got a story to tell you. Uh, so you know, I, I walked, uh, you know, walked her through that and talked about it, and she was really blown away that you know people would actually believe that the vaccine could possibly be, you know, putting some kind of microchip in them that would be unquote or quote unquote the mark of the beast uh, that could bring about the end times. The same can be said about people's desire to get out of NATO or to withdraw from the United Nations, afraid of one world government. Or in Protestant circles, the entire uh, Mm anti-Catholic mantra Mm -hmm. of the Pope uh, being the Antichrist. That was my kind of upbringing era. That was the big, Yeah, I don't know. Line of thinking. Right. And so all of this plays into the sociopolitical ideology that is actually born from this very uh, out there theological bent that Carrie was talking about in her book. Uh, and that is what is really terrifying. I'll never forget uh, hearing a theologian talk about uh, their experience in the State Department growing up in the 19, or not growing up, but they were serving the country in the 1990s or early 2000s. The first time, I can't remember what it specifically was, the first time Benjamin Netanyahu, who's now the prime minister of Israel, the first time he was the prime minister of Israel, every time the prime minister of Israel would come to the United States, the first stop was not the White House. Mm-hmm. The first stop was not the U.S. Congress to talk with congressional leaders. The first stop was always in Lynchburg, Virginia, at yeah. Liberty University. I think you mentioned that in the interview. Yeah. yeah. And think about that for a second, that this global leader is reaching out and influencing this voice, Jerry Falwell, who has an audience of millions of people mm-hmm. trying to get Jerry to use his theological uh, bent to propagate the domestic and foreign policy of the state of Israel. Or was it vice versa? I don't it, know. It could have been both, yeah. Both and yeah, situation. Both and, yeah, you're absolutely right. So, so you know, as silly as a lot of this stuff sounds, and, you know, you and I laugh about it quite a bit, um, it's really serious and very terrifying. It's very serious that we have, that the absurd is no longer just absurd. Yeah. Like uh, in one breath, you're saying someone from our, uh, one of our elected official officials is calling one of his own citizens of his state filth. Right. That's absurd. And that, which is terribly absurd. Then you have like the almost on the other end of the spectrum, comically absurd, you know, about, 
you know, the end times or the rapture and, and all these funny things we're kind of laughing about. But on some level, again, as absurd as it sounds, Americans, people across the globe really have a responsibility to understand this on some level so that we can see what ideology is now infecting and or infused into our into our government, into our policies. And, mm-hmm. and honestly, I mean, I would say that elected officials don't even fully understand. Oh, I no. don't fully understand right. it, but yet it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are, are scholars way smarter than me. And as you know, Carrie so incredibly researched and wrote this book, you know, it is another good friend of the pod and Nelson has written yeah. books about this. I mean, again, we've, we've provided you with a new, numerous interviews and authors who have written about these things way more educationally than I have. And it's crazy to me that my 12 year old self that was simply worried about accidentally playing a record backwards, (laughs) you know, God forbid that the devil try to speak to me through that. (laughs) And now thinking, you know what, but the, our population needs to know this because that's how we got, I mean, in some ways, it's not a far reach and it's not a very big, as we talked to Carrie about, it's not a very big connect the dot situation no, here. No, it's not. And it really is this simple. And an illustration that I've used uh, in some conversations that I've had over the last 30 years of my career, and it's, it's this, this, this analogy. Let's say you are 10 years old mm-hmm. and I tell you that there is a day in the future that I am going to take you to Disney World, the mm-hmm. happiest place on earth. Mm-hmm. And you're going to get the most incredible experience of your entire life. Mm-hmm. But everybody on your block is working against you to make that happen. And if you let them, you're not going to get to go to Disney World. What are you willing to believe and do in order to make that trip happen? Okay, so you're 100% right in what you're saying, and you've also ruined Disney World for me, (laughs) so thanks for that. (laughs) I apologize. But to me, that is, obviously, every analogy falls short, but... I mean, I think that's a great, I mean, from my perspective, again, 10 years old, that's pretty much the way... The gospel was presented. Yeah, that everybody is trying, the, the world, quote unquote, the world is trying to prevent you from getting to Disney World. and Because you're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. But here's the secret. There's a secret formula for you to get there. And if you follow this secret formula, this secret pathway, then you can get there even faster. That is what's terrifying in our society today. There are people who not only believe in this eschatology and end times politics, they're doing everything they can to expedite that to occur. That is what scares all of us to death. All right, on that uplifting note... (laughs) 
<laughs> Let's go back to Louisiana, listen to some jazz. I mean, I just want to sit on Bourbon Street, just listen to me some jazz, and you know, pretend uh, this isn't all actually happening. But uh, here we are. Yeah. So we'll be back again next week talking about it some more. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so thank you so much for tuning in this week. Until next week, keep living good faith. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org. <laughs>